You're listening to an Ono Media Podcast. Good morning, and thanks for joining me for Rise and Crime, your morning caffeine hit all about crime. I'm Mama Jules, and I'm going to bring you this quick story at the beginning of today's podcast because I've seen some seriously bizarre and dangerous activity on public transit lately. So allow me to tell you a story about one of the times I used the subway in New York City. This was nine years ago, and I had taken my daughters, Peyton and Marley, to New York for their very first visit there. I had been several times before, and I'd used the subway system to make my way around Manhattan because, you guys, it's simple, it's fast, it's convenient. It's really a quick way to get around the city. Well, on this trip, we were trying to get off at a stop, and I exited the subway car first, totally expecting Marley and Peyton to be right behind me. But a nanny with a double stroller exited after me, which delayed my girls. And it also meant that the subway doors closed with me on the platform and them in the car. So I put my hand up on the glass of the door and I yelled, get off at the next stop and wait for me. I'll find you. Peyton told me later that the remaining riders on the subway car let out a collective, aww, when they realized what had just happened. But all was well. They got off at the next stop, and I caught the next train headed in that direction, and they were alone for about five minutes. They were like roughly 17 and 15 years old at the time. But I tell you this story to say that the riders on the subway were so great with them chatting and telling them the next stop was close and that they really shouldn't worry and that the trains ran frequently so it wouldn't be a long time before I caught up. But recently, whether it's hyper-reporting or whether it's really just changing out there, it seems public transit is experiencing a measurable increase in crime, which leads us to the story that happened Sunday night. 45-year-old Richard Henderson of Crown Heights and his buddy Anthony Williams were returning from a football party. They had just watched the Packers wallop the Cowboys, I'm sorry Dallas fans, and they were truly just living life, having a great time. But while he was riding the subway in NYC, a man entered the train with speakers playing loud music. Anthony told authorities that a scuffle broke out between the loudspeaker guy and another subway rider. Richard jumped up and he tried to intervene. And that's when the loudspeaker guy pulled a gun and shot Richard in the back and in the shoulder. Anthony said that all Richard was trying to do was to calm the situation. He also said after shooting Richard, he turned the gun on Anthony, but the bullet missed and went through the door. That's when the car emptied and Anthony was left holding his mortally wounded friend. No one is yet to be arrested in the murder and the other half of the scuffle, the other guy, well, he fled also. And as of this recording, police have yet to find him. Now, Richard was a caregiver. He had worked for more than 10 years as a crossing guard at a private school in Chelsea. And his brother said that his entire life, Richard just helped people. He even died trying to help people. His son said that Richard was a peacemaker and that on that night, on the subway, he was just trying to restore peace between two people. And I think we sometimes hear 
these kind of stories following tragic death. You know, like the joke is the person lit up the room, right? Well, I think it's true here because in just four hours of his GoFundMe campaign being online, donations had topped over $12,000, mostly from families who had been touched by the service that he had provided for school children every day. So big hugs, prayers, and love to Richard's family. And I hope justice can prevail in this case. And how about this update to a decades-old case involving an airplane hijacking and a mysterious parachuter? It's November 24th, 1971, in Portland. And most people were getting ready to celebrate the Thanksgiving holiday. But one well-dressed man carrying a black briefcase walked up to the Northwest Orient Airlines at the Portland International Airport and purchased a ticket to Seattle-Tacoma Airport. Now, that's just a quick flight north, roughly about 30 minutes. And the man, who is wearing a dark business suit, is flying alone. This was 53 years ago, and air travel was very, very different. I remember a time when I was a young girl greeting my brother at the gate when he was returning from Europe, and that was more than a decade after this event that I'm telling you happened. There, at that time, there was no security. I, it was just me running up to him as he exited the tunnel. Well, when it came time for the man to pay the ticket agent, he handed the agent cash and simply gave his name as Dan Cooper. Well, this Mr. Cooper probably looked like several other travelers in the Portland airport that night. It was the early 70s. People wore suits to travel via the air. Dan Cooper was also wearing a black trench coat, a white shirt, and a thin black tie. He seemed to be in his mid-40s with darker hair and brown eyes. The only other identifying item was, along with the black briefcase, he was carrying a brown paper bag. When he boarded the Boeing 727, Mr. Cooper could choose any seat available, and he picked the last row, seat 18E, and he ordered a bourbon and 7-Up from flight attendant Florence Schaffner. When the flight took off, Florence was seated in the jump seat at the rear of the plane. Mr. Cooper turned partially around and handed Florence a note. She wrongly assumed it was the passenger's phone number, thinking maybe he was some lonely businessman searching for companionship. So she just slipped the note into her bag without reading it. Undeterred, Mr. Cooper turned partially around again and says to Florence, Miss, you'd better look at that note. I have a bomb. Florence hesitantly retrieved the note and found written on the inside this phrase, Miss, I have a bomb in my briefcase and I want you to sit by me. Well, Florence stood. Then she sat back down next to Mr. Cooper and gave him back the note he had written. In a hushed voice, she asked to see the bomb. Mr. Cooper opened his briefcase to reveal two rows of four red tubes with attached wires, which, understandably, Florence believed to be dynamite. I mean, if we were to draw dynamite, we would probably grab a red marker, make a cylinder shape, and add a fuse. Well, under Mr. Cooper's instructions, Florence writes a note that demands $200,000 in a knapsack. He also wants two front parachutes, two back parachutes, and he wants it all delivered by 5 p.m. 
Okay, that was a significant amount of money in 1971, about $1.5 million in today's value. But why four parachutes? Well, it seems Mr. Cooper was implying he wanted a front and back parachute for himself and one other person, presumably a hostage. Florence transfers the note to the cockpit, and Mr. Cooper's plan rolls forward. Florence stays in the cockpit, and another flight attendant named Tina Mucklow sits next to Mr. Cooper for the rest of the flight to SeaTac Airport. Mr. Cooper relays more demands to Tina. He wants the fuel trucks to meet the plane when it lands, and he wants all 36 of the other passengers to remain on the plane. He says he will release the passengers once the money and parachutes are brought on board in Seattle. So I find this next part of the story so crazy. It's a short flight. Remember I said half hour. Mr. Cooper doesn't have a lot of time for those on the ground to secure the money and get the parachutes, but they actually make it work. The president of the airlines authorizes a wire transfer of the money, and he also orders all the employees to comply with Mr. Cooper. For two hours, the flight circled the Puget Sound area, and that allowed time for Tina and him to chat. During that time, Mr. Cooper talked about the area they were flying over, revealing that he was clearly familiar with the landmarks. He noted an Air Force base and remarked that it was only a 20-minute drive from that base to SeaTac Airport. Now, all of these context clues about Mr. Cooper were guiding Tina to understand who the hijacker might be. Tina said Mr. Cooper wasn't nervous or rude, but instead was polite during their conversation. Once she felt somewhat comfortable with Mr. Cooper, Tina asked why he had chosen Northwest Airlines for his hijacking. He replied that he didn't necessarily have a grudge against Northwest Airlines, but that he just had a grudge. When Tina asked him where he lived, Mr. Cooper did finally show some agitation and he refused to answer. He then offered her a cigarette, and she replied that she had quit, but she took the cigarette anyway. That's another throwback, right? I mean, smoking on a plane? Completely unheard of for several decades. Well, at one point, a man wearing a large cowboy hat stood up and quizzed Tina about the supposed mechanical issue that was delaying their landing. See, that's what everyone else on the plane thought was going on. They didn't know about the hijacking. But Mr. Cooper was annoyed and asked the man to return to his seat. The cowboy complied, and Mr. Cooper looked at Tina and firmly told her that if the cowboy hat man was a sky marshal, she should make sure she puts a stop to his questioning. Again, you guys, that's another context clue that Mr. Cooper knows about flights. Well, finally, at 546 in the early evening, flight 305 landed at SeaTac. Mr. Cooper agreed to the position on the runway where the plane was stopped after the landing, and he had demanded that the money and parachutes be delivered by only one employee of the airline. As the employee approached with the demanded goods, other employees attached the staircase to the front entrance of the plane. Tina left her seat next to Mr. Cooper and descended the stairs, retrieving the items from the employee. She carried the 19-pound bag of money to Mr. Cooper. Once he had the money and the parachutes, Mr. Cooper instructed Tina that the passengers could be released and that they should exit the plane. All the while, he is trying to lighten the situation 
by offering to tip the airline crew. Okay, they all deny his money because airline policy was that they don't accept gratuity. As Mr. Cooper is completing his plan, he isn't really satisfied with the cloth bag the money is delivered in. He uses a pocket knife to disassemble a parachute and use the bag from the parachute to store the money. Okay, two things here. He has a pocket knife. Again, a throwback to previous flying experiences. And the second thing, he is now telegraphing that that second parachute was just a way to convince employees not to fiddle with the parachutes in any way. If he was going to take a hostage, the FBI and the airline's aren't going to rig a parachute to fail. All right, the next actions by Mr. Cooper telegraph even more about his true identity. He supplies an exact flight plan to the pilot. Okay, that plan included the concept that the flight gear must remain deployed and that the wing flaps must be lowered to 15 degrees and that the cabin must remain unpressurized. And here's a crazy thing. He also demanded that the rear door to the airplane be opened and the smaller staircase be able to be lowered through the whole next leg of the flight. Okay, of course, airline employees said this was unsafe, but Mr. Cooper demanded that they take off this way. Well, two Air Force jets were scrambled and remained a safe and pretty significant distance from the Boeing plane that is now back in the air. Most of the time, Tina is right next to Mr. Cooper's side. But once in the air, he told Tina, who was getting pretty scared and nervous at this point, well, he said, go to the cockpit and don't come back. She begged him to disarm the bomb if he was going to jump from the plane. He agreed to either take it with him or disarm it. All of this as he is tying the money bag around his waist. When the flight was nearing Portland, Mr. Cooper completely deployed the rear stairs, which made the flight pitch upward. And the crew, who are all in the cockpit, are unsure if Mr. Cooper jumped from the plane. So they just continue flying to Reno, where they had scheduled to land and refuel. Upon landing there, the FBI boarded the plane and searched for Mr. Cooper. He was gone, and the flight was cleared of any pending danger. And the investigation kicked into high gear. Dozens of latent prints were recovered. Mr. Cooper's black clip-on tie was left on the seat, and that was recovered. Cigarette butts were recovered. And, of course, the damaged parachute and the other unused parachute were found. Trying to tie the name Dan Cooper to a real-life hijacker, the FBI goes on and speaks with a man by that name in Portland. But he isn't their guy. Unfortunately, a wire reporter picks up on the questioning of the man whose initials are D.B. Cooper and runs with the name, printing it in a story that is republished by multiple media outlets. And that is how D.B. Cooper was born. The name given to the man who supposedly successfully hijacked a plane and parachuted to the ground with $200,000 and then disappeared forever. Maybe. The FBI search was exhaustive. They studied the flight pattern. They threw a 200-pound dummy parachuter out a similar plane, just trying to determine where DB would have landed. They searched the ground. They searched by air. They knocked on farmhouse doors near where they thought he might have landed, but they had no luck. They even searched lakes in the area, 
but no items or DB were found. On two different searches in the spring of 1972, over 200 soldiers and FBI teams canvassed the areas. Still, nothing was found. Over the next three years, none of the money, marked with specific serial numbers, seemed to enter the currency system. So, if DB survived, he wasn't using the money in any large amounts and in any large businesses. The most movement in the mysterious case surfaced in 1980. So that was nine years later, and it was provided by an eight-year-old. See, Brian Ingram, the eight-year-old, was camping with his family on the Columbia River, and he was raking the sandy riverbank in order to start a campfire. That's when he uncovered three packets of the ransom cash still bound by rubber bands. Now, the money totaled $5,800, and the bills were heavily disintegrated from the exposure to the elements. But all this did was cause more confusion. First off, where the money was found led investigators to change the potential drop zone of DB. Also, the money seemed to have not been in the river immediately following the drop from the plane. It was as if maybe it had been kept secure until possibly springtime of that next year. So this, along with evidence that a small convenience store in an unincorporated area of Washington had been robbed of survival supplies, but not of money, well, all of that led people to believe DB had completed the skydiving event successfully. But I'll tell you, plenty of people say he didn't, including the FBI. They felt that his unfamiliarity with the parachutes and the terrain that he landed in would have prevented him from surviving. But numerous private groups and individuals have searched for clues over the years. Three composite sketches have been released. They were developed from the many people who came in contact with DB that day before Thanksgiving in 1971. Some of the slight tweaks between the sketches include a less angry expression from sketch two to sketch three, and also a darker complexion that might resemble Mexican-American descent. And the men that were interviewed on that day, well, they seem to describe DB as slight or smaller, but the women who were interviewed described him just a touch taller and heavier. Profilers said he probably smoked about a pack a day. That's due to how many cigarettes he smoked on the plane. They also theorized he was active and athletic and that he somehow worked in the military or in the airline industry. He seemed to have a higher intelligence level due to his vocabulary and that he most likely committed this crime alone. They're saying there was no accomplice waiting for him on the ground. Now, one of the biggest giveaways to him potentially working in the airline industry was that he knew the staircase could be deployed during flight and that he also knew the cockpit couldn't override the deployment. He also knew a clear flight pattern that would aid him in jumping from the plane. Now, despite the FBI saying that DB couldn't have survived the jump, multiple suspects were investigated and most were eliminated. But one that never quite left the list was Vince Peterson, who died in 2002. So why has he continued to pique the interest of investigators all this time? 
Well, it all comes back to that black clip-on tie that was most likely purchased from J.C. Penney for $1.49, and it was worn that day by D.B. And that brings us to the update in this case. Scientists have pulled more than 100,000 particles from the clothing item, and with today's technology, scientists are able to trace three specific elements that were pulled from the tie. The evidence made up of stainless steel and titanium has led investigators back to a Pennsylvania plant called Crucible Steel. In the 1960s, Crucible Steel was the major player in the airline industry and specifically the main supplier for Boeing aircraft. So you're sitting here thinking, that company's in Pennsylvania. This crime occurred in Washington. But you got to remember how DB could look out the window and identify the landmarks including the Air Force Base. Well, the Pennsylvania employees often traveled to Seattle to work with Boeing, and the timing of the hijacking is very suspect. Boeing was booming in the 1960s, but in 1971, Boeing had a significant downturn, and the hijacker had mentioned that he had a grudge. And Vince Peterson, well, he was a titanium research engineer for Crucible Steel. Investigators say that they can place him in Seattle multiple times and that his ties to Boeing are compelling. So I bring you this update for a couple of reasons. It truly is the only successful hijacking in American history. And success is relative because he had to have survived for it to be successful, right? Also, researching this case, Vince does seem like a viable suspect, but quite honestly, so do other men. But even more compelling for me is that science has become so refined that a speck on a tie from 1971 can yield the identification of still manufactured nearly 3,000 miles from the hijacking location. Okay, I do feel like there is a gaping hole in this story, and I need to answer it for you. What about familial DNA off the cigarettes that DB smoked while on the plane? Well, investigators have now solved multiple cases, most notably the Golden State Killer from California with familial DNA. Well, those cigarettes are missing, presumably destroyed because they didn't seem to be offering any help in the case. Private investigator and researcher Eric Eulis is confident this case will be solved in 2024. He has been instrumental in conducting the research of the evidence that remained from this decades-old mystery. Information on Vince Peterson? Well, that's elusive. So is information on Florence, the first flight attendant to converse with DB. But that second flight attendant, Tina, well, she's given interviews in the last few years. She said most of the crew just wanted to move on with life and not be defined by that night in 1971. If you want more information on this mystery, HBO produced a documentary called The Mystery of D.B. Cooper, and that was released in 2020. I'll be watching for updates to the potential identification of the hijacker. If 2024 is the year, the identity of D.B. has remained hidden for 53 years. And lastly today, this quick update on Rex Huerman. That's the man accused of killing three women in the Gilgo Beach area of New York. Well, he's now been charged with a fourth murder. Maureen Brainerd Barnes vanished in 2007 while she was working as an escort. 
And her remains were found in the same area as Melissa Bartholomew, Megan Waterman, and Amber Lynn Costello. Those are the three murders that Hewerman is currently charged with. Well, on Tuesday, it was announced that a grand jury has indicted Hewerman for second-degree murder of Maureen on or about the date of July 9th, 2007. Police believe that Maureen being found in burlap, just like the other three women, and disappearing like the other three women, and also working as an escort, like the other victims, shows enough evidence that Hewerman can be accused. And another significant finding was that Hewerman's estranged wife and two children were out of the state when the murder of Marine happened. This also is similar to the other murders that Hewerman is accused of committing. Now, the state contends that this allowed Hewerman to have unrestricted time and responsibilities during the window of the deaths of the four women. A search of the defendant's house turned up a violent pornographic material and two hidden cell phones that police allege Hewerman used to solicit sex workers. For the additional charge, Hewerman pled not guilty, just like the other charges. His attorney, Michael Brown, said his client has maintained his innocence from day one and that he's looking forward to fighting the charges. Hewerman's next court appearance will be on February 6th. He has remained incarcerated in the Suffolk County Jail since his arrest. Well, you guys, that's your Thursday episode of Rise and Crime. Thanks for all the support on the various platforms. And let me know what you think of these cases. If you love what you're hearing, please give Rise and Crime a like or a follow. And please tell a friend and subscribe while you're at it. Join me again on Monday for more morning crime news. I'm Mama Jules, and keep safe out there. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.